want to share with you the results of some surveys that have been done in, in recent years. Um, maybe it would be appropriate given this time of year as we get a little bit further into December, you're going to see a lot of things, you know, surveys asking, hey, what do you think about this, the greatest this, the greatest that, and such that um, we're dealing with, we're facing all these kinds of things. So this is the, the sort of thing that I'm after. Um, when asked... Typically, when asked, what is the greatest problem that is facing the world? Well, you know that the answer is going to vary depending on your personal politics, your preferences, your perspectives. I mean, of course, the answer to the question, what's the greatest problem facing the world? The answer to that question is going to vary depending on, on those things. Now, what's interesting, though, is that there's really not a lot of variation on the answer to this question. Red or blue, conservative or progressive, uh, it, it, the, the answer is fairly consistent when, when you drill down a little further into that question. And if you rephrase it this way, not so much what's the greatest problem facing the world today, but what's actually wrong with the world today? What's actually wrong with the world today? And when you phrase the question that way, 98% of the respondents agree with this statement. There is not enough love shown. There is not enough love shown. Now, what's also interesting is when you ask the follow-up question, things get a little tricky. That 98% of the people that said, well, the, the, the big thing that, that's wrong with the world today is that there's not enough love shown. When asked, when that, that same group of people is asked, well, do you show? Do you show the kind of love that would actually make a difference in the world today? 95% say yes. Okay, think with me, statisticians. Something's askew here right? Because even if a significant minority of that 95% was in fact right, even if a significant minority of those who say they love people in a way that should make a difference in the world today, even if a significant minority of those individuals did in fact love that way, the world would be a better place, wouldn't it? To, to, to some degree, the world would be a better place. So it would seem that something's off here, at least in the numbers. Something's at, at least off in the numbers, in the statistics, in the way that we're answering the question, which then tells you this. It's not just something off with the numbers. It's something off with us. That we could be that blind. This is what the Bible calls sin. The self-dependency, self-directing, self-delusion, the deceit, the lies that we ourselves believe even about ourselves. The, the problem of what the Bible refers to as sin is so grave, so dire, we can't even see how grave and dire it is. So that's why you have answers to questions like that. Oh, how we need a Savior. Some truth to Christmas. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to 1 John, or you can follow along on the screen if you like. 
Um, 1 John chapter 3. Uh, this is a little short mini-series, the third of three, uh, our responses to Christmas. Uh, two weeks ago, or three weeks ago, I guess it was, yeah, we were in uh, 1 Timothy. Uh, th- last week we were in 1 John 4. This week we're in 1 John 3. If you're trying to find John, it's okay. If you're still struggling, I hear pages, that's fine. Uh, it's not the, the easiest book to find. Revelation, the very, very back, I'm going in reverse order. Revelation, Jude, 3 John, 2 John, 1 John, 1 John, 1 John 3 is where we are. 1 John 3, we're going to read verses 4 through 10. We're going to really press hard on verse 5 and let the context speak to how to understand and unpack verse 5, and actually also some other places in 1 John and even in the Gospel of John, just as a disclaimer. So, uh, hang on. Here we go. 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, reading on through verse 10, hear now God's Word. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning." The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother." Well, that's easy. I was kidding. We need to pray. Let's do that now. Lord Jesus, we need You more than we know. So deep is our need that it is far greater than we know. To understand, to grapple with what the Apostle John is saying here, to understand it, to not keep it at arm's length, but to embrace it, to let the encouragement here speak, to let the conviction here speak, to let you have your way with us, to lay down our preconceptions and our assumptions of what it must mean, and let you speak. We need your help. We're very guarded. We're very defensive. We need your help. We need your grace. We ask for that now. Amen. Christmas is a time for singing. Of course it is. It has been from the earliest celebrations, uh, the very first celebration, actually, when you think in terms of the the model that is set for us by the angels there outside the, of Bethlehem in the fields with the shepherds as they pronounced, sung, you might even say, the great news that the Savior has come. So Christmas is a time for singing. 
And the best of the carols do at least these two things. Actually, all of the great, the great, the best of uh, the hymns do this, but the carols in particular, they do at least these two things. One, they express something of our hearts. Okay, they give us a channel, uh, rails to run that would free us and enable us to express something of, of our hearts. And at the same time, secondly, this is the other way that they work, is they shape that expression, okay? They do both at the same time. They, they allow us something of a heart's expression, and they shape something of that heart's expression as, as well. And, and this song, the one that I alluded to last week, is no exception to that. You may remember I mentioned Christina Rossetti's In the Bleak Midwinter. I want to read to you that first stanza again. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow, in the bleak midwinter long, long ago. Now, you understand that that poetic as it is, is not meant to describe meteorological conditions on the ground. The imagery that Christina Rossetti is, is utilizing there is meant to paint a picture of the spiritual state of the world outside of Jesus, okay? The cold, bleak, harsh hardness there. That's the first stanza. Now, the, sec the second, third, and fourth stanzas, I'm not going to read those. You can look at them yourself. The second, third, and fourth stanzas then paint a picture of a series of, of beautiful contrasts, the way that she, she does that. The first contrast is between the Lord's first and second coming. The next contrast that she paints is the reality of His identity and the harsh circumstances in which He enters. The fourth stanza, the third of those contrasts, is a picture of the adoration of the angels in heaven and the adoration of His mother at His birth. Well, then you get to this last stanza, and this one I am going to read. You get to that last stanza, and it's something of a, of a reflection as we're listening in, as we're eavesdropping on all this. What can I give Him? Poor as I am. If I were a shepherd, I would bring Him a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give Him? Give Him my my heart. The, the song is, is meant to, to begin with a reflection and move towards a whole life response, a realization that given who He is and why He has come, oh my goodness, there is a whole life full-throated response that is due here. It's just as John would have us understand. Just as John is saying here in the text that we read a moment ago from John 3, 1 John 3, excuse me, Jesus has come, the Savior has come, the Messiah has come. Jesus has come, and John is telling us, to deal with our sin. Jesus has come to deal with our sin. We need to live in light of that, okay? It's very simple, what John is saying here in John 3, 1 John 3. Jesus indeed has come to deal with our sin. We need to live in light of that. Now, there are three points if you've got the outline, if you printed it off uh, yesterday or this morning um, in the, uh, the bulletin. Uh, the three things that we would need to, to grapple with uh, as far as what it would mean to live in light of that, and these three things are going to unpack together. 
First is the event of Christmas. The second thing is the reason for Christmas. And then the third thing is the impact of Christmas. Okay? Gra- recognizing that Jesus has come to deal with our sin, we then need to, to live in light of that. We need to grapple with these three things, the event, the reason, the impact of Christmas. All right, so first, the event of Christmas, that is, the reality of it, the fact of it, okay, the event of Christmas. And you see that, again, we're going to be really looking at verse 5, drilling down here, 1 John 3, verse 5, you know that He appeared. Stop. You know that He appeared. John is not using the language of once upon a time or a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. That's not the kind of language that he is using here. He is not setting this up as something mythical. He is speaking, this is the claim of an eyewitness. You know that he appeared. He's borrowing language and and, uh, things that he's already said in this letter. Go back to chapter 1, the first three verses. That which was, and you can hear how he's pressing, 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 this idea of of speaking as an eyewitness. This is testimony. There's nothing mythical about this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. John would have us to understand there's absolutely nothing mythical about this. This These are the words of an eyewitness. and And in that, he is giving details of a testimony. And in fact, if you go back and read the way he writes his gospel, we call it the gospel of John, and the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are no exception to this either. You see the the marks, the details of testimony, of of factual accounts, and they are relaying. For instance, turn with me, keep your thumb there in 1 John 3. Go with me to the gospel of John, chapter 6. John, chapter 6 this is the account, John's account, of Jesus' walking on the water. And you just listen to the details, okay, and, and reckon with the reality that this is an eyewitness account. John chapter 6, starting in verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But He said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take Him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So many details here that John is just putting out there, just putting forth. There's nothing mythical about this at all. This is not read like the stuff of ancient legend. Remember your high school courses, the Iliad and the Odyssey? You don't find anything like this. You don't find anything like this. Why then do you find these kinds of details in John's account? Because it happened. And he's just relaying that. He's just telling us 
as it was. This is not the stuff of myth. This is not mythical. This is not made up. This is not fairy tale. This is historical. When he says, you know that he appeared, back to 1 John 3, 5, that's what he's talking about. And so when he records it, when he recounts it, when he tells us what happened, there are verifiable details. There are names. There are places. There's orders of event that is recounted. There are other events, even in some cases in the Gospels, that are outside. They're just making reference to, like, you know, the the census, for instance, in the Gospel accounts in Jesus' birth, the census of Caesar. Why? Why do you throw that in there? Because that's when it happened. Because that's when it happened. And again, this is not the way myths, ancient myths, read. Also, something else worth pointing out, what I'll call chronological proximity. What does that mean? Glad you asked. It means the the little bit of space in terms of time, number of years between when John and the other gospel writers are writing and the events themselves. Such little time. And and the details are thrust in front of us such that it really is inviting the reader to say, check it out. Check it out. Go ask. Go to those places. Ask the people. You might even find the person whose name I listed here. Check it out. It's real. This is not mythical. This is historical. Folks, the idea being that as with any event that takes place in the flow of time and space, it has implications. It has ripple. It has impact. It has effect. The greater the event, the greater the effect. This is the greatest of events, the coming of the Son of God into this world. How could it not have implications? How could it not have effect? This happened. We need to live in light of the event of Christmas. Now, think with me just of one of the biggest, uh, most prominent, that's a better way to put it, most prominent features of our Christmas celebrations, and then I'm going to explain that in a second, and then ask some historical reflective questions about that fixture. Okay, so here's my question. How did we get to Santa Claus from St. Nicholas? How do we get to the jolly old elf of Clement Moore's The Night Before Christmas from a fourth-century bishop in modern-day Turkey? Well, that's actually, it's a really interesting question, and if you want to take the time to study it, I can point you towards resources because you can trace the story. Why? Because it's in history, right? Our idea of Santa Claus is in history. The way we do it is what I mean. St. Nicholas is in history. You can connect the dots as how we got from the one to the other. Okay, here's a follow-up question. How did we get to St. Nicholas from Jesus of Nazareth? Eyewitness testimony of men like John. This happened. This happened. This is history. This is historical. This is, not, this is not mythical and how we need to grapple with the historicity of these events. And when you grapple with the historicity of these events, when you recognize that the idea of this being legend is just swept off the table, it then opens up the door for the great, uh, direct, famous, pointed argument that C.S. Lewis made in Mere Christianity the lunatic liar or lord argument. Once you've swept the possibility of legend off the table, 
you're then forced to reckon with these other options. Lunatic, liar, or Lord. Let me read it to you. This is what Lewis said. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, a liar. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. You see, if if legend, if that possibility is swept off, off the table, what are we left with? Lunatic, liar, or Lord? Deal with it. That's what John's saying here. You know that He appeared. You know that He appeared. Jesus has come to deal with our sin. We need to live in light of that. Well, that then takes us to the second point. Not just um, the event of Christmas, but the the reason for Christmas. And we're going to inch our way just a little bit further here in verse 5. You know that He appeared to take away sins. You know that He appeared to take away sins. Now, there is uh, so much uh, anticipation behind those words, uh, especially for a Jewish reader at that time. Such anticipation, such a longing here. And and John is tapping into something that he has, has already written of back in his gospel. So again, keep your thumb here in John, 1 John 3. Let's go to John 1. John chapter 1, verse 29. This is the, an exchange between John the Baptist, not John the Apostle, John the Baptist, the forerunner of, of Jesus. John the Baptist, an exchange between him and Jesus, okay? 1 John 1, verse 29. The next day, he, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold! The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Very same phrasing that's used in 1 John 3. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What is John talking about? There's not a lamb in sight. There's no no fully woolen little four-legged creature in sight. What is he talking about? This is the image, long-standing imagery that the Jews would have known, the Israelites would have known going way back to the Exodus going way back to when the Lord rescued, redeemed His people, drew them out of enslavement, bondage, centuries long there in Egypt. And He gave them this command at the end of the plagues, as I'm getting ready to pull you out, put the blood of a lamb upon the doorposts, and the angel of death will pass right over. 
And the Jews, because the Lord commanded them to do so, then celebrated that as the Passover for centuries. And for centuries, here's the lesson impressed upon them, whether they got it or not. One, the heinousness of our sin would demand something that looked like that. And the graciousness of our Savior, that one would come to take what we deserved, to shed the blood, to be the final sacrifice, to live and die in our place. Oh, the longing here, the anticipation here. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, the prophet Isaiah speaks of this very thing. These are words that we oftentimes read, not at Christmas, but at Easter uh, and Good Friday in particular. Isaiah 53, and this is some 700 years, Isaiah's writing, some 700 years before these events actually come to pass. Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand out of the anguish of his soul. He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The Lamb of God has come to take away our sin. All that great anticipation has been realized in Jesus, and because of that, we can have true forgiveness right now. Right now. Right this very moment. John speaks of that in 1 John 1, just two chapters earlier. We see it there in verses 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, you you, you hear there's two sides of what John is saying here, that we've both parts we need to reckon here. One is our heart's corruption. He's saying that the Christian, the disciple, the follower of Jesus does continue to sin. Even after their conversion, even after the indwelling of the Spirit comes, and John is speaking to that reality and saying, but there is a provision for that, my friend. There is a provision for that. When you confess your sin, when you turn to the Savior, He will forgive your sin and cleanse you from all that. And in fact, this he goes a little bit further. It's quite bold what John says here. He speaks of God's justice and and even the possibility of God being unjust. What? Because what he says is, if we confess our sin, if we come before the Lord and own that and repent, it would be unjust of God at that point not to forgive us. What? How can that be? Because the demands of justice have already been met. His wrath has already been poured out in full upon Jesus. There's nothing left to be paid. Look into the cup, the cup of His wrath. There's not a drop to be found. 
Jesus drained every last drop. So for God not to forgive us would actually be unjust of Him because justice has been done. Do you hear the assurance there? Because we know God is just. And in this we see His mercy as well, His justice and His mercy kissing, coming together in Jesus, this one who has come for us. Oh, friends, how you and me, we need to live in light of Christmas. Jesus has come to deal with our sin. How we need to live in light of that. It's why this is indeed rightly a time for celebration. Hanging lights, singing songs, joy to the world. The Lord has come, let earth receive her King. It's why it's right and absolutely right. If you look into what God has written to us in His Christmas card, you will not find words in there remotely reading like instruction and advice as to how you can improve your life and get right with Him. If, you will simp- if we will simply open up His Christmas card to us, His Christmas greeting to us, we will not find any words of instruction and advice. The only words we find in there are words of pronouncement and news. He's come. He's come. And it's finished. The Lord has come to deal with our sin. You know, as John says here, you know that He appeared to take away sins. What comes to mind when you hear John say those words? What plagues you? What guilt? What shame? What dark secret holds captive your heart that maybe you haven't even dared share with another soul on this earth? Do you know He's come to take that away? The Lamb of God has come to take away the sins of the world. That's good news. Takes us to our third point. Not just the event of Christmas and the reason for Christmas, but the impact of Christmas. We're going to creep now finally to the conclusion of verse 5. You didn't know it was that long, did you? You know that He appeared to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. Now, here we're speaking of the ramifications when we speak of the impact of Christmas, the ramifications of Christmas, the effect of Christmas. You see, at this point, we're not speaking, and at this point in this this third part of this verse, we're not speaking here of forgiveness of sin, but freedom from sin. Freedom from its tyranny, freedom from its bondage, freedom from its enslavement, 
Now, we need to move head on into this question, the question of perfection, because we get oftentimes tripped up here with verse 5 and some of the other things that John says there. We need to understand what he actually is saying. John is not saying that it is possible in this life for the Christian to live sinlessly. That is not what he is saying. He is not saying that if you will live a blemish-free life, God will love you. You'll be right with Him. That's not what He is saying in any way, shape at all. That flies in the face utterly of everything else the Bible says, and you know it flies in the face of our experience as well. That's not what John is saying in any way at all. If you, if you pay attention to what he's saying, as you go through this passage, you see that what he's warning against is the practice of sinning. He uses that phrasing several times in this passage. And he warns against those who would keep on sinning, you see. He's not saying, he's not speaking of just one act or a series of acts, of blowing it, of snapshots. He's not talking about snapshots. He's talking about the movie. He's talking about the plot line. He's saying, don't, you can't live this way. You can't live in this. Okay? He's not speaking of sinlessness, but striving against sin. That's what he's saying is the mark of the Christian, the mark of the true disciple, a striving against sin. The Christian, the the true disciple, actually, however poorly, yet still longs for holiness, longs to please the God who has already declared His pleasure. Who's Zephaniah? Remember we read that earlier? Sings over us, sings over us already. Knowing everything about us fully, He sings over us already. We long for holiness and we long to please the one whose pleasure we already have. So then the posture of our lives lives are not to play with sin, but to oppose it, to resist it. And when we fall, not if, but when, we grieve, we repent. We confess, and we move. We start again. We start anew. And that's the mark of obedience. The Christian is set, aside, is set apart in this world by the mark of obedience. That's what John is telling us here. It's one of the things that makes us distinct and different in this world. Because, how is it possible? Because we're united to Jesus. We're united to Jesus. We are in Him. Look at these words from verse 6. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. This language of abiding, if you go back and look at John 15, the chapter in John's gospel, the vine and the branches, it's the same language, it's the same idea the, the, as, as the branch is, is abiding, gets its life as the Christian, as the disciple, looks to and relies upon Jesus day by day, hour by hour, in everything, in every part of our lives. We are in Him. That's how we resist. That's how we strive against this living in sin, this practice of sinning. And, and John tells us we are in Him, in Him, and he goes further, We are even of Him. So it's not just the abiding that He urges us towards, 
but it's already the reality of the, if you will, the heritage, your spiritual genealogy. Look at what he says in verse 10. Excuse me, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. That's how this is possible because of who and whose we are. Children of God, born anew with His Spirit living in us, indwelling us now. Emmanuel, God with us. It's true. It's really, really true, and it has results. It spills over into real life, and it has real implications. So you go in and read verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Look, John is not speaking to the impossibility of a disciple sinning. That's not what he's saying. He's speaking to the incongruency the inconsistency given who we are of the Christian sinning. That's what he's speaking to. Let me illustrate this with a little bit of Christmas history, okay? So Ace Collins has written a lot of stuff on, on this topic, getting into the history of Christmas, and something rather striking I want to read to you. I just pulled it right out of his book uh, and just want to make you aware. Only in relatively recent times... In the past 200 years, has Christmas ever been celebrated by most Christians? Up until the 1800s, the day recognizing Christ's birthday was largely a pagan celebration. Those who bemoan the lack of religious zeal in modern Christmases would have been appalled at the way people in early America celebrated the day. For a majority of people who embraced Christmas throughout history, Christ wasn't part of the day at all. In most of the world, especially in England and America, Christmas was not a day of worship, prayer, and reflection. Rather, it was a day set aside to sing body songs, drink rum, and riot in the streets. It was little more than a parade of excess for centuries. It was something of a mishmash between Mardi Gras and Halloween. It was so bad that true Christians dreaded Christmas, and in many places the celebration was outlawed because it was just so bad and things were so out of control. Now think with me how incongruent and inconsistent that way of celebrating the Christ Mass is with ostensibly the events that it's marking. You with me? They don't match. They don't fit. Well, that's just what John is saying here. When you and I live in sin, when we rebel against our Savior, it's a life of incongruency. It's a life of inconsistency. It's not that it can't happen. It's just that it shouldn't. It really, really shouldn't. And so John is putting forward here this sobering reminder but also a soaring encouragement. Because if you read it the way He intends for us to read it, 
what you begin to pick up on is, wait a minute. You mean I can be free? I don't have to live a life of lawlessness, as he speaks of. I don't have to live a life that is governed and tyrannized by my own self-determining drivenness by my passions and futile wishes. I don't have to live that way anymore because of who and whose I am, because of whose Spirit indwells me, because Christmas is real. And see, that hope is held out for every one of us here this morning. Right now, we can begin anew. I don't know how you're doing. Half, well, a little, a little over, let's say two-thirds of the way through December and four-fifths of the way, right? Four-fifths of the way through the candles. You may have tanked it. It's okay. You can start over right now. Right now. Because it's true. Jesus has come to deal with our sin. We need to live in light of that. Christmas is a time for singing. I mentioned already Christina Rossetti. I'll take you to another one. Uh, Reginald Haber. He's an 18th century uh, poet and pastor, and believe it or not, actually also bishop in Calcutta, India. I think is where he died. Uh, he is best known for penning the lyrics of a song that I'm guessing most of us here are very familiar with, Holy, Holy, Holy. But he wrote a Christmas song. And if you printed out the bulletin, that's what your quotes and notes are this week. It's called, Brightest and Best of the Sons of the Morning. And it's written from the vantage point of the Magi, the wise men, as they've gone forth on this quest looking for this king, this one-born king of the Jews. And on, because of this quest, they have questions. So the song unfolds. Let me just read it to you. Brightest and best of the sons of the morning, dawn in our darkness and lend us thine aid. Star of the east, the horizon adorning, guide where our infant redeemer is laid. Cold on his cradle, the dewdrops are shining. Low lies his head with the beasts of the stall. Angels adore Him in slumber reclining, Maker and Monarch and Savior of all. Say, shall we yield Him in costly devotion, odors of Edom and offerings divine, gems of the mountains and pearls of the ocean, myrrh from the forest or gold from the mine? Vainly, we offer each ample oblation. Vainly, with gifts would His favor secure? Richer, by far, is the heart's adoration. Dearer to God are the prayers of the poor. You see, just like as Christina Rossetti put it, the best of the carols take us in this direction. Who is it that's come? And why? And how should we live in response? Who is it that has come? Why? And how should we live in response?
bowing, yielding, trusting the whole of ourselves, exempting nothing. Bowing, yielding, and trusting the whole of ourselves, exempting nothing. Because the King has come. The Lamb has come. Jesus has come to deal with our sin. And we live in light of that. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we would ask and do ask. In the midst of what is oftentimes, with all the best of intentions, a very busy season. We ask that you would impress upon our hearts the reality of these events and increase our wonder. Increase our wonder. Would you impress upon our hearts the reason for these events? Our sin is that bad, and our Savior is that good. Oh, would you give us a sense not just of wonder, but relief. Great relief. Oh, as we consider not just the effect and not just the reason, but the lasting, daily, continual, everlasting impact, would you give us the humility to examine our hearts, to see the ways in which we are living guarded lives? This year has been very telling. It's been very exposing. May that exposure serve this purpose that You'd help us to see where we are living in ways that belie the claim that the King has come, that our Savior has come to deal with our sin. Oh, would You help us to bow and to yield and to trust the whole of ourselves to You. Would You please help us to be stilled? We pray this in Your name. Amen.